today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. With the signs and symptoms of what's normal, what's not with your period and with your cycle, that's the first thing, right? You have to know what's your norm. Like you have to know what's going on with your body. There's no way you can advocate for yourself. There's no way you can have an educated conversation with your doctor. There's no way you can feel like you're not in like the black hole of period problems. And trust me, I've been there without knowing this information. And so it's, we have to make a decision, right? We have to make a decision as people in these bodies that we're gonna decide to learn how they function. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with one of my dear friends, Nicole Jardim. She's a certified women's health coach, writer, speaker, mentor, and the author of the best-selling book, Fix Your Period. Nicole and I talk pretty much almost every day as she is a wealth of knowledge in all areas of period health, which is why I had her on to answer your most burning questions. Before we get started though, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Oh my gosh, Nicole, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am so thrilled to have you on today. Likewise, I am so thrilled to be here with you, Carrie. <laughs> I feel like we've already had an hour-long conversation. <laughs> I know, that's the thing with recording podcasts with your really good friends is that you spend the first many minutes catching up and being funny, and then we have to jump into the podcast. So be serious, semi-serious. Be serious. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try, we'll try. Today, I am thrilled to have you on because we're talking all things period 101. And as you are the expert and the author of the super popular book, Fix Your Period, I couldn't think of a better person. This is going to be wonderful to go over all the questions that people slide into my DMs and ask the comments, the emails, et cetera. There are a lot, aren't there? <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. We'll do our best. Ashley, before we get started, why don't you just give people a little background of who you are? what you stand for and why periods? Absolutely. <laughs> I will. For me, my period was a nightmare as a teenager. And that really was the impetus for all of this that has happened over the last couple of decades. I, first of all, laugh because never in a million years did I imagine that I would somehow come to specialize in the menstrual cycle. But here we are. I remember as I was like 14, 15, and my period was so heavy and it was mortifying. I would go to friends' houses to spend the night and their moms would put a little towel down on the bed. And I remember being at a friend's house and her older brother came into the room and I'm laying there like, oh my God, he could see this towel that I'm laying on. This is just the worst thing ever to happen to me. So yeah, you know, it was a lot of those very mortifying experiences as a teenager. 
having to stay home from school because my period pain was so bad, leaking through school uniforms, all the fun stuff. And that went on for multiple years because I didn't know there was anything that I could do about it. And my mom certainly didn't know either. And so I finally went to her OBGYN. And after explaining all these problems, the saga of my life, she was like, oh, I'll just put you on the pill. And I just thought, okay, cool. That sounds like a great plan because everyone was on it, right? I was finally going to be part of like the cool girls club. And so I got on the pill and everything normalized, which was amazing for me because I finally felt like I could get my life back. And then within about a year, I started to have all of these symptoms. And I remember feeling like I was the poster child (laughs) for period pill related problems, because what was even more frustrating was that they were all kind of unrelated. I had these UTIs, I had yeast infections, I had joint pain, I had stomach problems, my hair was falling out. I had melasma all over my face and I was 20, 21. So you can imagine. Anyways, fast forward and I actually had to take a medication for one of my chronic UTIs and the doctor prescribed it and I actually had an allergic reaction and I didn't know that I was allergic to sulfa drugs or sulfa-based drugs. So ended up in the ER, fun times. And a friend of mine had been trying to get me to see her acupuncturist for the better part of the school year because we were still in college. And so the next day she's like, okay, are you going to see my acupuncturist finally? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Yes, I will. I'll see your acupuncturist. Because at that point I'd seen probably like 15 different doctors and no one had answers. No one said anything about the pill. So he was the first person to say something to me about this pill thing. And I didn't believe him. I was like this Chinese guy, he's older. Maybe he doesn't understand women's bodies. I don't know. But he was incredible and he explained everything and it made sense. And I saw him for years and he helped me get off the pill. And that was the catalyst for all of this that I do now. It was, I mean, everything just completely changed. And so I studied women's health and that's kind of how I got into this. Obviously that's a very shortened version, but yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) But I think this is really important. And I think obviously you talk about this a lot and I know it hits home with those who are listening of a lot of people raising their hand going, that's me. Like, oh my gosh, that was me. That was me in middle school or high school or college. Like I can completely relate to a lot of those. So obviously the very first question, and you, I know you get this all the time, is what is normal? Like, what can we expect? And maybe normal is too broad of a term, but like, what can we expect or what should we expect out of our, let's start with our period and then we'll actually move into the whole menstrual cycle. But given like my periods were bad like yours. Terrible cramps. I remember calling my mom, having to get picked up from school because the cramps were so bad, having to miss out of parts of trips because I got my period on spring break. So bad. What is expected? I know. I have to say, though, hearing you say that too, because I've heard you talk about your bad periods as a younger person as well, and how frustrating it is that it is so incredibly normalized for us, no matter what age you are. That's what's crazy about being female, is that from the time you get your period, you go through puberty and your teen years or your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, you're kind of just told, oh, well, that's normal for where you're at, for your age, or you're getting older, or this is normal for postpartum or for perimenopause or whatever. It's so exhausting. There's never really a time where these problems are taken seriously or even actually addressed. So yes, I'm just a little caveat I want to throw out there because I feel like it's so frustrating to hear you say that. I just hear this over and over again. You know what's interesting though about the normal period thing is that Oftentimes, the question I get is, I'm on birth control and my period has 
started to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, okay, you're not having a period. So I think that's the first thing that I always try to clarify for women when they come to me is that a true period is always preceded by ovulation. And if you don't ovulate in a particular cycle, then you're basically experiencing what is known as an anovulatory cycle or like a hormone withdrawal bleed. And so really, it's not so much about the period. It's about the fact that you need to make sure you're ovulating and having a period. I would say that's the first thing that I wanted to clarify for everyone. But when it comes to your period, I really like to see periods that are somewhere between three and seven days long. Usually if they're over seven days, that means to me that there's something going on with estrogen and progesterone. It could be multiple things and we can get into that for sure. But usually that's an estrogen dominance type of situation where your uterine lining is just building and building. And and then when it sheds, it really sheds. And so there's no stopgap for that. So that's usually what I see there. And then when it's under three days long, what I see is a problem with either a lack of ovulation or something else is happening where estrogen isn't building up to the point where it's building up your lining significantly. So those are the two things I think. So first of all, period length, somewhere between three and seven days. If it's two days and you're feeling amazing, that's great. (laughs) I don't want people to think, oh, well, I have a two-day period and is there something wrong? But it's important to also think about other symptoms that come with a period too, right? Because it's obviously not just like how long your period is. So there's that. And then the other thing that I think about with periods is what they look like, right? So is it nice, fresh red color that you're experiencing with your period? Or is it this dark brown or black type color blood that you're seeing? And so if it's basically the goal is to be getting this like red, fresher color, pretty much from the get-go, if you're seeing that dark color, usually it's a sign of slower moving blood. And that can be caused by a couple of different things. Oftentimes what I see is there's some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction and uh, your uterus is tilted or you're tipped back. And so that blood is just coming from the last cycle. But yeah, the goal is sort of a brighter red. And again, it doesn't need to be bright, bright red, but it you want to be aiming for like a red color. The other side of that is sort of lighter colored blood. So this pinkish, watery looking blood. To me, that usually indicates that you didn't ovulate or estrogen isn't sort of peaking. And again, like building up that lining so that you have like a good flow. Because sometimes with that too, there's just not a lot of blood. It's like kind of scanty. And like I said, a little bit watery and might just be spotting. So something to pay attention to as well. The other thing I think is the consistency. So again, you're looking for that nice color, but you, I remember someone asking me once about period panties and whether they were good for like that smashed up blueberry looking type blood flower. I was like, girl, that's a whole other conversation, but those, the period panty one, but yeah, we're trying to avoid having blood that looks like that. So you really want it to flow. I I often liken it to things like maple syrup, something like that, where it doesn't flow just like water, but it's a little bit thicker than water. And so when it's flowing that way, you can feel it, right? So you're not feeling or seeing these clumps or these big clots. You really don't want to see clots that are more than like an inch long and consistent. You can see them here and there, but if that's what your blood consistency looks like, then definitely start to pay attention to that. 
and again, on the flip side of that too, right? If it's just very like light pink or scanty or just spotting, that's sort of the other end of the spectrum. So you want to be paying attention. So again, like nice, healthy flow. A lot of the time I get asked about start and stop periods as well. So where periods come for two days and then they stop for day three and then they come back for days four and five or something along those lines. And oftentimes, I tell women that maybe they should see a pelvic physical therapist or consider things like vaginal steaming or castor oil packs just to get blood flow flowing because I feel like that's often a situation where there's some sort of stagnation happening and usually it resolves itself with those practices and we can get into those too. But those are some of the things I think about when it comes to a period. Maybe I miss something. <laughs> what about cramps? Are cramps normal? Oh yeah, cramps. Oh my goodness. How could I forget the biggest one? You know, what's crazy to me is that in our society, we've totally normalized pain associated with our uterus. Isn't that funny how that works? And it drives me crazy because I feel like we have basically dismissed an entire generation of women with regard to menstrual pain. And that to me is wholly unacceptable. But basically, no, cramps are not normal. But I guess there is some nuance to that. I would say that if you get a little bit of cramping, it's not a big deal. What I say to women who come to me is that if you are cramping and it's disrupting your life or and or you need more than like one dose of ibuprofen for a whole period, everybody, people are like, wait, for the day or for the whole period? <laughs> And I'm saying for the whole period, if you need one more, more than one dose of ibuprofen and your life is being disrupted, that's a sign from your body, right? Your body is not speaking English or whatever language you speak to you. It is speaking in the language of symptoms and signs. So we really have to start to understand what those mean. And usually pain is a sign that there is something that needs your attention. And if you have cramping that starts before your period and then continues to get worse during the first day of your period and then throughout your period... It's certainly something to pay attention to. And we'll, we can talk about underlying causes. But yeah, those are some really big ones. Do you find with a lot of these symptoms, how do I want to phrase this? Like, I mean, I knew my mom is an example. So I knew my mom had terrible periods because it was normalized to me. Like, oh, it runs in the family. Grandma did. I did. Therefore, you're going to yes. welcome to being a Jones. But I also feel it, just from observation of social media, which is I know is not scientific, that a lot of these symptoms are getting actually exponentially worse, or maybe they're just being more talked about. And I feel when we talk about, and especially when I read your comments, because you obviously post about this the most, more way more than I do, that so many people are just like, it's bad. My PMS is bad. My cramps are bad. My symptoms are bad. It's getting worse or it's been getting worse or my friends are all bad. Do you find that? Are you seeing that Sort of, or maybe just because it's more talked about, but like periods and hormones in general are just sucking worse as years go on. It feels that way to me. And it really does. When I think back to when I was younger, and I'm curious about your experience too, none of my friends had what I was experiencing. They had little things here and there, but it wasn't to the extent of, that I had. And now that when I talk to teenagers and women in their 20s, particularly that decade, like the 15 to 29 group, the level, the intricacies, the complications that they are experiencing with their cycles seems so much worse than it ever has before. I feel like it's getting worse, but maybe again, it's because I'm so exposed to it. I'm not sure. It's hard to say, but it really does 
intuitively to me feel like it's getting worse. Yeah, I would agree with you there. And I think that people listening, I love this because not only, let's say the average listener on this podcast is between like in their late 20s to their late 50s, early 60s. And so even if you're listening to this and you maybe you're not cycling anymore, you're fully menopausal, this is really helpful information to know of what you went through. And number two, if you have somebody who's a young female in your life and they're talking about this to not normalize it because we obviously will get into some of the things that you can do to be really helpful. But I love as you describe like what can be expected, what should be expected out of a period in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think about the fact that, again, we have been conditioned to believe that this is a terrible thing, right? This is, we're doomed. Like you said, welcome to being a Jones. I felt the same way too. My mom said, oh, you think I, you have bad periods. I was in bed for three days. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess I have it good then. I think that this low expectation for women's health and for our vitality and well-being really has to go. It, we've really, we're done with that now. I think it's time that we do something different because I think women are finally waking up to this and they're demanding more answers. They're demanding better care. And unfortunately, medicine as it is right now doesn't really have the answers and the solutions for them. And so that's, of course, creates an even more compounded problem. Yeah, most definitely. Let's talk about the amount of flow. So you said that expected is three to seven days how much flow? Because we absolutely, we've all had clients who've come and said, oh my gosh, I have to change a pad or a tampon or a cup or whatever they're using every hour. Sometimes that's not even enough. I'm putting, having to change more often. And other people are like, I can put one in for the day and that's all I need. So it's really variable of what people experience. Isn't it though? It's so interesting. And every time I have posted about what's considered normal for the amount of flow, women are like, what? (laughs) That's a day, right? Actually, no, this is what's considered in the research, at least what's considered normal for the entire period. And that's actually a range of basically 60 milliliters is considered the ideal, like a max of 60 milliliters, because over 80 milliliters is considered a heavy period and under 25 is considered a a very light period. So somewhere between the 30 and 50 milliliter range. So everyone who's listening, please fill up measuring cup with 30 to 50 milliliters of water and you're going to cry probably (laughs) because you potentially lose more than that. And I think the challenge, right, is that measuring menstrual blood loss is not exactly easy. has some limitations. So of course, like we take the science of the grain of salt, I feel like in this instance, because obviously you're expelling uterine endometrial lining, tissue clots, there is vaginal and cervical fluid. So there's more fluid volume potentially than what's being described. But I think that only really you can know what's normal for your body, but at the same time, right? So think of the one fully soaked tampon or regular tampon or pad holds about five milliliters of blood. That's what they say. And super tampon holds about 10 milliliters. So the idea is that you should be soaking about six to 10 regular pads or tampons during each period. Most of us don't use up a pad or tampon fully, so it'll vary, of course. But what basically, if you're at 80 and above milliliters, and again, fill the measuring cup and look at that, this is a sign of an excessively heavy period. And so what this means essentially is that you're soaking more than 16 regular tampons or pads per cycle, You're soaking through regular period underwear on a regular basis, like within a few hours, or you're like changing a half full, I use like an average of 30 milliliter menstrual cup, more than six times during your period that adds up to about (laughs) over 80 milliliters. But other signs for people who don't really want to even think about all that stuff 
are, does your period last more than eight days long? Are you flooding? Do you feel like you're changing pads or tampons or period underwear or a cup, you know, more than every hour? Are you changing in the middle of the night? So are you changing the period protection that you have getting up in the middle of the night to do that? Or do you feel like you have to double up on period protection at night? So you've got a pad and a tampon or a cup and a pad or something like that. And one other thing too, I find is that your period really wipes you out. So you just feel exhausted, depleted, and dizzy when you get your period, because I see a lot of that as well too. So those are some signs of what a heavy period looks like. I can talk about a light period too, if that's helpful. Well, actually starting with the heavy period, is it typical or expected? Because I got this question the other day, if people say, I either start out light and then it gets heavier, like crescendo, decrescendo. Starts out light, gets heavier, and I might have to change my tampon a lot that heavy day, but then it gets lighter again and I'm not that worried. Or the reverse, it starts out with a bang. They're like, holy crap, my first day is so freaking heavy but then it tapers down from there. And, or do you tend to, is ideal to be consistent all of the days? Right. Yeah. So it's like, how should my period flow? (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So first of all, I feel like, yeah, I suppose it's like the pattern of bleeding, right? The first day, first of all, I should say this to everybody. If you're spotting, that is not considered your period. So the first day of your period is always the day that you need protection. You feel like you're experiencing significant enough bleeding that you need protection. So that's a pad, a tampon, period underwear, a cup, something along those lines, a sponge. I mean, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But basically, so that's the first thing. And so when usually what I see is a period typically starts out heavier and then moves to the medium range and then becomes lighter and then ends. Or you might start out lighter, become heavier, and then lighter again. So like a bit of a bell curve. And then sometimes some flows are just consistent every single day. And then it just ends or tapers off. So I feel like each of these scenarios are all pretty normal. I think that, again, right, always taking into consideration all aspects of your period, not just, say, your flow pattern, is really important too. And I like when you said on the opposite with the light periods, because I do get this question of somebody might say, I do only bleed for two days or I bleed light for two days, but I don't really have any other symptoms and I seem to be pretty regular. What's wrong with me? I'm like, maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. That's if that's your normal for years. That's where more of that history comes in as well. But will you address really light periods? Because I think it is a question that often gets overlooked in favor of those who have really heavy periods. Right. Because nobody ever said, oh, I want to have a heavier period (laughs) in the history of periods. Ever. (laughs) Ever. I know. Right. Okay. So it's funny because I have a lighter period and it has, it's fluctuated, but it definitely has gotten lighter over the years as I've gotten into my forties, which I feel is a bit of the opposite of what tends to happen in your forties. So I don't really talk about it too often because everyone's like, what did you do to get that light period? Although I will say, I actually wouldn't mind a heavier period. So I will say that. But what's crazy is that we don't really talk about this because like we said, right, the focus is really on heavy periods because it is so prevalent and it's such a big problem for so many of us. But an excessively light period usually indicates, or, you know, a short period as well, can indicate a lack of estrogen, lack of ovulation or sporadic ovulation. It could be that maybe there's something going on with your thyroid. It also could be I mean, again, lack of ovulation is usually linked to some sort of external internal stressor situation. And so there's plenty of those. 
there's a lack of specific nutrients, or it could be there's just not enough calories to ovulate to even make these hormones. So it could be multiple things. It could also be indicative of gut issues where you're just not absorbing the nutrients as well, absorbing the fats. So there are multiple issues at play. And so of course, always work with someone who can investigate all of this. And at the same time, as you were saying, Carrie, I mean, it could just be that you're fine. I've had everything checked. Things are a little on the lower side, but I'm 43, so I'm kind of like, okay, well, we'll see how that goes. But generally speaking, it all pretty much checks out. So I think it's so important, as you always say, right? Test, don't guess, and try and figure out, like, is there something actually wrong? And again, always take your full period picture into consideration before jumping to conclusions about your two-day period. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Actually, so speaking of the full period picture, let's back up a week. We'll kind of move through the cycle in reverse. What about PMS? Is that common, expected, yeah. normal? Because, oh my goodness, boy, it sure. I mean, I joke about it all the time. <laughs> as we should. I for sure, as we, you know, like it's all we can do at this point. But we can explain, do. first of all, what it is. I mean, there are people who don't understand PMS, premenstrual syndrome. And then I kind of want to also touch on uh, PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder and the difference, because I definitely feel in the comments and the DMs, there are people who, if they were my patient, I probably would have said, oh, you know what? You look like you're more PMDD versus PMS. And I want that to be recognized. So let's just start with the basics of PMS. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I think that there's this strange sort of paradox in our society where we have all these PMS jokes, which again, I feel like we can all joke about it here and there. It's fine because we do this work and sometimes you've got to make this a little bit lighter than it is because it's heavy stuff. So there's the PMS jokes. And then there's also the fact that we don't really take this so seriously, but it actually is a thing. And so I feel like we're constantly struggling to be taken seriously, or at least have our symptoms and our issues taken seriously when we go and see the doctor to begin with. So I think that the first thing is to remember you have a lot of control over this and uh, these premenstrual symptoms. And so for anyone who doesn't know, PMS is premenstrual syndrome. The understanding is that basically these are sort of a constellation of symptoms that show up somewhere within the week before your period actually arrives. And it ranges from physical symptoms to mental, emotional symptoms. So things like bloating, crampiness, heaviness, headaches, migraines, things like that, body aches, that kind of stuff, to the mental, emotional stuff, like being quick to anger, being impatient, being frustrated, being anxious, feeling very teary and just out of sorts, generally speaking. And again, like I always want to remind women that our hormones are fluctuating, right? We're talking to Carrie Jones here. Like she talks about this all day, every day. And so your hormones are fluctuating. These Some of these symptoms are actually normal, but so much of it is driven by inflammation and detoxification problems and blood sugar issues, which all abound in our society right now. So how much of it is driven by our lifestyles that are totally incongruent with our biology and how much of it is just sort of normal. And I think there's the answer lies somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want people who are listening and who maybe don't know, even as hormone aficionados as we are, like I totally get PMS sometimes. I mean, I am prone to menstrual migraines. I same some cycles I want. I warn my friends. I'm like, go buy dark chocolate because I'm headed to the store and I'm going to buy all of it. <laughs> you will get none because that's what I'm craving at. Some cycles I'm angry. Some cycles I'm super tired. I mean, it really just depends. And I love that you said 
our hormones are supposed to fluctuate, but they're also at the whim of toxins, detoxification, stress, our diets, travel, et cetera, et cetera. Are we sleeping? Are we not sleeping? What's going on in our life? And we, Nicole and I are not excluded from that. And so the months that I do get a migraine, I mean, it's usually at higher stress, eating is different, workouts are different, whatever. And I know leading up to it, like, dang, I think I'm going to get a, this is going to be a headache month, unfortunately, just because it's a weak spot. Headaches are a weak spot for me and always have been since I was a kid. And it's going to affect my hormones. Whereas other people, fatigue is their big thing. I have a really good friend who will say, man, I know it. I know as I'm getting close to my period, my fatigue is suddenly 10 out of 10. And I only would do is lay on the couch or sleep in. And then I got my period and it goes away, but it's not every month. It just sort of depends what's going on. And there are hormones are very prone to outside influences, which is on the one hand, a bummer, but on the other hand, it's those are things we can control, right? Sometimes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they like to come to the peer pressure. <laughs> Our hormones. <laughs> yes. Easily influenced, like you said. Yes. It's really interesting with the PMS symptoms or the premenstrual symptoms. I try to, again, I sort of stay away from this, the definition, right? The syndrome, because I feel like this sometimes sets us up for feeling like we're stuck with this for life. And so I always, I always ask women who come to me these questions. I ask, have you noticed that your symptoms have worsened with age? And, or are they particularly bad? Like you were just saying in times of stress or lack of sleep, crappy food choices, travel, all that stuff. And are they getting progressively worse when something isn't working in that person's life? Like in, is something going on at their career, relationship, whatever? Was there a time when you noticed that they got worse or that you didn't have a problem and then suddenly you did have a problem and you noticed it? And when we can pinpoint that, I mean, so much can change. You can ask yourself these questions and suddenly you can really realize, because what I find, as we were just saying, right, your hormones are highly influenced. I find this stuff starts to show up between like 30 and 35 for women. When in their 20s, they never really had these things. And I'm like, yeah, well, because you were a lot more hormonally resilient back then. <laughs> we could do a lot more damage to our bodies. Right. Age was on your side. We were just talking about this, right? I know, exactly. We were just talking, you guys, about the fact that your 40s and drinking, it's really hard. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. So, you know, if you answer yes to any of these or you think back to all of this, just think about how these external factors can influence all these symptoms and how they manifest. And when you are talking with somebody, and I know in your book, you hit on this quite heavily, things like blood sugar, we don't even think of, or gut health, we don't even think of. So, while absolutely stress and toxins and travel and the outside factors play a huge role, which you talk about in your book, even things, blood sugar fluctuations. I mean, the ups and downs of glucose, the erratic ups and downs of glucose, as you talk about, can worsen things like anxiety, can worsen things like fatigue. And then you overlay that the week before your period when your hormones are shifting. And I mean, it can just be a hot mess express all around. <laughs> it's just so bad. And when you think about the fact that how your hormones influence blood sugar as well, or how blood sugar behaves in your body and how insulin behaves in your body, it's just crazy. So like when you think about the beginning of your cycle or the first half of your cycle when estrogen is climbing in that follicular phase and you've got like this increased insulin sensitivity, because estrogen is actually really awesome, even though I feel like it's been really villainized. <laughs> 
And so insulin works better in your body, basically, in that first half of your cycle. So I'm always saying to women, if you're going to have something, you're going to have the cookie or cookies or whatever, have them then (laughs) because you will feel a lot more in control of your emotions during that time. But then what's amazing is that ovulation time, insulin sensitivity starts to decrease. And then we have progesterone taking over. And that seems to be where a lot of the blood sugar problems start to arise, right? So we're more prone to these blood sugar swings during this time in our cycle. And of course, it's the time when we want all of the cake and the wine and all the things because chocolate. God help us. We just got to get through it. Right. So we're so sensitive to these blood sugar drops and we crave all of the sugary things. And this is a recipe for disaster, but it really does explain why we're ambushed by these intense cravings and why we don't do well in that half of our cycle. Because even if we have something we had in the first half of our cycle, I do see a pronounced difference in how, at least how my body responds to it. And I've seen this in lots of clients over the years too. So something to seriously think about too, right? Is it PMS or is it blood sugar imbalance? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. I had a continuous glucose monitor in in early November. And I've noticed this trend before. I've had a glucose monitor in my arm off and on through the years, mostly because thankfully they were gifted to me or managed to get one. And I definitely see a difference in my ability to handle blood sugar, even though I am fairly consistent in how I eat and fairly consistent in my workout schedule and sleep. But in the luteal phase, so that again, especially that sort of PMS week, so to speak, my blood sugar is a lot more erratic, even if I haven't changed anything. Just by default of the shift in my hormones, I could see it there when I scanned my glucose monitor and saw it on my app, like, oh, I am definitely more erratic. And I definitely noticed like my sleep isn't as great. My heart rate variability, which is a marker of your stress response is lower. And so even just getting this immediate feedback around our cycle, if nothing changed from the first part of the second half of my cycle, it didn't matter. My hormones are shifting. And so then I just know I have to be extra diligent. But the and you talk about this a lot in your book too. And just in general, when I hear you lecture, you, you can be so proactive. I, mean, I, I know the things to do and try to be very diligent, more diligent about them so that I don't feel like a PMS monster. <laughs> Still happens sometimes, but... It definitely happens sometimes. We're all, like you said, nobody's immune. I love this because I have also used continuous glucose monitor and it has been so tremendously helpful in seeing those shifts. So I, I think this is... Again, sort of further affirmation for anyone who's listening, if you've felt those shifts physically, they 100% are happening. It's not in your head at all. And that your body is just responding at how it's supposed to respond to whatever's going on, whether that's external or internal, like we were talking about. So yes, a glucose monitor, if that's within your budget, is incredibly helpful, even if you just did it for a month for your cycle. Because I saw the same things too. And I was thinking, wow, I ate the exact same thing two weeks ago that I ate now. And this is just so interesting. And the heart rate variability as well. The Aura Ring has been really helpful for me too. So again, for some people, it's amazing to have that feedback right away. And then for others, it freaks them out and it stresses them out even more. So find what works for you for sure. Yeah. 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 I didn't want to miss out on PMDD, by the way. I didn't know if you were going to ask me. I was just going to say, yep, (laughs) that was my very next question. I don't want to forget it. Yeah, I didn't want to either. And so PMDD, for anyone who doesn't know, is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And the estimates are somewhere between 2 and 8% of women worldwide who are impacted by this. And so it's actually classified as a psychiatric disorder, which, again, I think I'm not downplaying it by any means, but I do think that 
we have to be careful with that, right? Because again, like, are we boxing ourselves into having this thing that we have no control over? And I feel very similar to premenstrual syndrome that this is very much affected by outside influences. When you think about PMDD, right? So it's characterized by these really significant emotional, mental, emotional symptoms and physical symptoms as well. And a lot of women say to me, they feel it pretty much from the time estrogen drops after ovulation, and they feel it for the next two weeks until they get their period. So that is something that we certainly shouldn't take lightly because in addition to those premenstrual symptoms we were talking about, things like hopelessness and worthlessness and extreme anxiety and inability to just be calm and relaxed, explosive anger that really causes conflict in relationships. I've had so many women come to me over the years saying that their relationship's hanging on by a thread and they don't know what to do. Even suicidal thoughts are something that shows up too. So this is obviously something to really be taken seriously, but I'm so curious because I feel that I've been able to help so many clients over the years take back their lives completely after, I mean, literally just looking, doing some gut testing, cleaning up their gut and looking at their blood sugar balance, which is obviously inevitably helped when you clean up the inflammation in the gut to begin with. So those two things alone, I think are tremendously helpful, but not really accessible to the masses of people who are experiencing this. Which is so unfortunate because PMDD, just as you said, I mean, it can be devastating for that week or two of their cycle. So imagine only having two, quote, good weeks or okay weeks, and then you know immediately you're going to plunge back into darkness, so to speak. I mean, it can, it's my patients who've had, who have PMDD or had PMDD were, it was just absolutely awful. And I love that you point out it's, we have a lot of tools and you talk about a lot of tools all the time, but it's not for some reason, common knowledge or generally accepted or taught about. It's like, oh, you have PMDD. Here's an antidepressant, which I'm not against, or here's the birth control pill, but that's it. There's no further education around, you know what, here are different hormones that go into PMDD. Here are different ways that we can help improve your system as a whole, improve the brain hormones, improve your ovarian hormones, And imagine if we could get your PMDD down to maybe a PMS level, like we could take it from a 10, even to a five. I mean, when you are in a dark place, you'll take a five any day. And so that's what drives me. Well, there's a lot of things about health that drive me crazy, but that's (laughs) a big one in women's health that these actionable items aren't discussed or educated. And instead it's, oh, you have PMDD, take the pill, don't question me and best of luck. Literally, right? And I'm like, I'm okay with taking the pill. Take the pill. Don't be suicidal. Don't be in a dark place. But then let's work on some of these underlying factors. Yeah, let's bridge you to the other side of this. Not let's just put you on this for the rest of your life. You know, there is this article, I think it's on MedPage, and it's called Lowering the Bar, How PMDD Went from an Idea to a Diagnosis. It's fascinating because it talks all about how the FDA approved antidepressants to treat PMDD before it was even named a psychiatric condition. And yeah, I know. And Eli Lilly, the same pharmaceutical company that makes the, I think it's, I can't remember the which drug it is or which antidepressant it is, but they changed the colors to, I think, pink and purple and named it Seraphim to make it sound more applicable to the condition. And I can't believe that's on a medical website, but it's there for anybody who wants to read about it. So it, to me, again, like 
we have to be so cautious or cognizant of the fact that there's money to be made here, right? With over-pathologizing women's lived experiences. And so we have to just be, I think, really cognizant of the fact that that's happening and controlling what we can control in our lives. Obviously, if you need medication, totally makes sense to me, but there's so much, we've seen so much major improvement. Like you said, Carrie, like even if you got from a 10 to a five, that's potentially life-changing. Yeah. Life-saving even in some regard, depending on the person for sure. Yeah. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about to wrap up with is ovulations. We've talked about, we we went in complete reverse because this is periods 101, but we can't not talk about ovulation. What is it and why is it so freaking important for the entire menstrual cycle? Oh my gosh. You turned me on to this study about ovulation. It's it's a massive study and it has so much great information (laughs) in it, right? I can't remember what the name of the study is. I think it's like the ovulatory, normal ovulatory something or other. And there's just so much good information. And I want to just talk about this stuff all day long because I can't believe our bodies do this. And I think that women really need to know how amazing our bodies are. The fact that, okay, so everyone, ovulation, (laughs) it's basically when your ovary has a little follicle and it releases an egg. That happens sort of around the middle of your cycle every single cycle. Well, it's supposed to every single cycle. And so the idea here, right, is that if you don't have ovulation, you really don't have any of these hormone fluctuations. You don't really make any progesterone, which you really need. You don't make a whole lot of estrogen. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you really don't. And I feel like ovulation is just this amazing thing. And I have found in research that I've looked at, they basically say that ovulation is a sign of health, right? It's implying that you have adequate endocrine and gonadal function. And that is a huge deal. And then what is is crazy to me is that we're told, oh, well, we don't need a period, right? Like we hear this messaging a lot now, right? You don't really need a period. But what they're saying is that you really don't need any of it. You don't need the period. You don't need ovulation. You don't need anything. You just can live your life without any of this stuff. And again, what an incredible disservice to any female on the planet because of the incredible health benefits that are bestowed on us by these hormones that are made from the ovulatory process. And when you think about ovulation and the fact that your bones benefit, your sleep benefits, your brain benefits, your heart, your breast and uterine tissue, your vaginal health. I mean, if we don't have estrogen, we got nothing down there, ladies. We've got no vaginal microbiome diversity. We've got no cervical fluid. We got nothing. And your skin and hair. I was thinking back actually to when I had that melasma sort of all over my face when I was on the pill. And the fact that estrogen plays such a crucial role in your skin thickness, your firmness, elasticity, your hair follicle health. And my hair was falling out. I was a whole mess. And if I had tested my hormones back then, I am sure they would have been at below the Dutch meter. Because it was, things were so bad. And like I said, if you don't have progesterone, that totally changes how estrogen stimulates your skin cells. So you end up with more melanin production. So you don't get this balanced skin tone. And it took me years to reverse that. So I just think about every single body system and how it's impacted by the pill. And we're never really told any of this. So we go on the pill, for instance, and we have all these, like I said before, seemingly unrelated symptoms. And then we're, we go and see all these different doctors like I did for all these different problems when in fact, it really just comes back to ovulation, the wonderful ovulation. The wonderful ovulation. And in <laughs> fact, our friend Lisa wrote a book, The Fifth Vital Sign, because it, and she wrote that those, that book a couple years ago, but even recently I'm starting to see in the scientific literature calling ovulation and the menstrual cycle, do you have one, don't you, consider it a vital sign. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> it's finally happening. Huh. Praise the Lord. Yes. Very slowly but surely, some of the scientists are like, female, of course, usually, are like, oh, right. The 
getting the active ovulation in your whole menstrual cycle as a system really does give us great feedback on how you are doing in your body. It is definitely a vital sign to pay attention to because it is affected, as you talk about all the time, and we have today by so many things. And if those so many things have overwhelmed it, then it's going to, we're going to be, like I said, a hormonal hot mess express. And <laughs> that gives us good vital sign information on what's going on with us. So totally does. Yes. I love that you, how much you paint ovulation in such a bright light. <laughs> I mean, when you think about the fact that we release this egg <laughs> and then we create this whole little organ on our ovaries to produce hormone that we don't normally produce for the second half of our cycle, that's remarkable. We've got remarkable bodies. And so I think we need to give them a little bit of credit every now and again. Yes, most yes. <laughs> definitely. Amen to that. Well, as we wrap this up, and this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, I am all about practical and tactical. What are your top two or three tips that you want to leave everybody with around ovulation or around their periods, improving their periods as takeaways? I mean, I think the first thing is like we were talking about in the beginning with the signs and symptoms of what's normal, what's not with your period and with your cycle. That's the first thing, right? You have to know what's your norm. Like you have to know what's going on with your body. There's no way you can advocate for yourself. There's no way you can have an educated conversation with your doctor. There's no way you can feel like you're not in like the black hole of period problems. And trust me, I've been there without knowing this information. And so it's, we have to make a decision, right? We have to make a decision as people in these bodies that we're going to decide to learn how they function. And you don't need to learn all the things that like Carrie Jones knows. Or you. <laughs> but, all right, I mean, you know, I know a few things. But I feel like you just need to know how long your period is. You need to know how much you're bleeding. You need to understand the, the symptoms that you're experiencing and make a note of them in an app. So track your cycle and better yet, take your temperature so you actually know whether you're ovulating. So I have everyone take their basal body temperature and that goes up after you ovulate. So if you know this information, this is vital data that your body is giving you every single month and you can start to make more informed decisions about your health. And then you can start to make changes based on everything that we've been talking about. In my book, I have a whole protocol. And when you make those changes, you will see shifts in your period symptoms every single month. Like it guaranteed will start to get better. And even if you don't get to 100%, that's okay. Like you will start to see improvements regardless. So I feel like, so knowing this information, right? Knowing what you're working with is so huge. So track your cycle. I love Kendara, Read Your Body, Clue. Those are some of my favorite apps to start tracking. And then also, I think for so many of us, I don't know about you, Carrie, but I really didn't learn anything about sleep as a foundational pillar until I was like really grown, probably 40, and didn't realize I had to sleep as much as I do. And that has been something that has been my mission for the last three years. And it's a big pillar. It's a big pillar of all the foundational pillars. So I'm a big fan of that. I feel like the blue blocking glasses, helping your body to produce melatonin, a good sleep mask that kind of covers your whole face. There's like a nice pillowy one that I found on Amazon that I love. Red light therapy, a light box in the morning for the wintertime because we live in dark, cold, yucky places. Vetiver essential oil on the soles of my feet before bed. I swear by this thing. It's so good. These kinds of basic things to really support the restoration piece of it is to me is so huge because we do so much wear and tear <laughs> damage on our bodies every single day in our waking hours. So the least we can do is do our best to try and like get better sleep. Amazing. Absolutely. 
Well, you know, I agree. (laughs) Of course. I know, right? And also like breakfast within waking, within an hour of waking. Can we just talk about that real quick too? Like I really want women to start to think about how they can feed themselves more because I find in our society, there's just too much focus on restriction. And it's not to say that everyone's like that, but I really do think that it's a huge problem. And I'm a big fan of dense meals and not necessarily a salad for like multiple meals a day. We just need more than that. We need carbohydrates to ovulate, guys. We need all this stuff. So we need protein. So a 25 grams of protein minimum and your breakfast and have it within an hour of waking up so that you're not go, go, going on cortisol all through the morning. And then your blood sugar and your mental health is totally frazzled by 1 p.m. That's to me is another big one too. That I think we overlook. Definitely. Especially the protein carbohydrate discussion we hear all the time and see all the time on social media. Definitely. For me personally, listening to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon talk about how women are under-proteined. Yes. We pick salads or soup. Like We're sort of light meal or we have a lot of vegetables, but not a lot of protein. And I personally significantly increased my protein about a year or so ago and noticed a massive difference and realized immediately I was under-proteining myself and Now I eat heaps of protein and it's made a big difference. And then the carbohydrates in the luteal phase. And our fasting friends, Dr. Mindy Pels and Cynthia Thurlow talk about like, don't fast in the luteal phase. Like you were, progesterone is trying to do her thing. So let her, and if at the very least, add in your extra carbs, add in your denser carbs and don't pick that time to suddenly do OMAD, which is the new one of the new trends, one meal a day, right? Or the extreme oh, fasting. No. Like, Are you serious? Oh. I haven't heard of that one yet. I can't. Yes. One meal a day. Is that really where we're at? O-M-A-D. O-M-A-D. Yeah. One meal a day. I'm seeing it more and more. I mean, if you eat adequate protein, you will lose weight. <laughs> it helps tremendously in that process. For yeah. sure. For sure. Without you breaking down your muscles. Because <laughs> that's all that's doing. Yeah. Right. Which is exactly, which we have to be very careful of. Oh my gosh. Yes. I know. Well, Nicole, tell everyone where they can find you because you are a wealth of knowledge. You've written a book. You have a great website. You're fun to follow on social media. So tell everybody all the places. Thanks, Carrie. Oh my gosh, (laughs) I just want to hang out with you every day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes, right. So everyone, you can find me at NicoleJardim.com and I have everything on there, a blog, programs, and the book is at FixYourPeriod.com. There's booksellers, as from all over the world that I could try and find at least on that website. And then I'm on Instagram as well. I'm Nicole M. Jardim. I have my own podcast. It's called The Period Party. So there's lots of resources for everyone if you're curious about how to fix your period. (laughs) And she is literally this fun. Nicole and I are friends, not just fun on the podcast, but we are fun all the time. We text all the time in real life. IRL, we are actually friends. Lots of memes. <laughs> and she is this wonderful. So she's this wonderful through her book and on social media in her podcast. So definitely give her a follow. Thank you. Give her a listen. And thank you so much for coming on today and really just dispelling myths and answering questions for a lot of people who just don't know what they should expect and when they should get help or how to be proactive. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. It's a true honor. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.